January is miserable, isn't it? It's official. It just is. As you look out the window, it's gloomy, it's dark, and we're all fighting hard to get into the rhythm and routine of real life again. Christmas has gone, the joy, the celebration is over, and we're into January, and we're fighting. In fact, two weeks tomorrow is Blue Monday, officially the most miserable day of the year. I wonder how you feel about January. I'm not a big fan, really. Dark, cold, I like being outside in the warm. But I've had friends who've really, really struggled in January. What hope do we have as Town Church Bicester in the doom and gloom of the January <coughs> blues? As we start the new year, in a culture obsessed with new year, new you, what hope do we have? What will we cling to as a church? This afternoon, as we look into this passage, we are going to see what hope the gospel brings to us. And in the coming weeks, over the next four weeks, we're, as Lang said, looking at the values that we hold to as a church, that the hope of the gospel shapes and that we want to be. So then as we look at this passage in Acts 10, what we're looking at is a, is a pivotal passage in the middle of Acts. So let me lay a bit of the groundwork for the book of Acts. Acts is where Christians are first called Christians. It's where the first churches are planted. It's where we see the first real evangelistic moves made. It's where Jesus sends, sends out his 12 and goes up to heaven and we see the movement of the gospel. Through Acts we see these kind of place markers of where the, the, this message that we read about here continues to flourish and spread. But the danger is, as we look at a book like Acts, we see stories like this and we can quite easily be discouraged as we look at what feel like super-Christians. But as we look here, the point isn't that. It's that we'd be encouraged to be passionate about God and his gospel and also realistic about the tasks that we face. The danger is that when we read Acts, we feel inadequate about the hope of the gospel. We feel inadequate about holding it out in our own lives. We feel inadequate about thinking about sharing it with others. But instead, I want to suggest that as we look at here, Acts 10, what's in the limelight is not the apostles themselves, but the message of the gospel. And this message is a message of great hope. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope comes from a new birth that will be brought eternally. So first of all then, we're going to see God's message is not limited by geography. Acts kind of tracks the job of the apostles that they're given by Jesus to take the message through the world. And Acts 1 verse 8 is Jesus addressing his, his apostles. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. 
that's the job that Jesus gives to the apostles in Acts. But if you're anything like me, when you read a list like that, it can just kind of wash over you, right? I, I'm not the best geographically, let alone biblical geography. So here's a few maps that maybe help us. Here's Jerusalem at the bottom coming up. It's in the region of Judea. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, here's in Judea. There's Samaria just above. And the ends of the earth, well, that's obvious, going out from there. See, Jesus giving the task to the apostles. He's saying, from Jerusalem, the epicentre of his ministry so far, that's where the gospel is going to spread. So as we join this passage, with that in mind, the beginning of Acts chapter 10 gives us a bit of a place marker as to where we're up to geographically. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Now here's Caesarea on the map. Caesarea at the top there in Samaria. And we read on a little bit later that Peter's down there in Joppa. So that's where we're up to in terms of the spread of the gospel. It's come out from Jerusalem. It's in wider Judea, but it's not yet coming out up into Samaria. We'll get into the mechanics of what that really means in a minute. But here as we meet this man, Cornelius, just look down at what it says about him. He's God-fearing. He's sympathetic. He prays, but he hasn't yet received the news about Jesus. But what's clear from what's coming next in these few verses is he's about to. Have a look at verse 3. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him and said, What is it, Lord? The, the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So there, as we look at the map and we see those two people, this chapter in the middle of the book of Acts is a bit of a hinge. It's absolutely crucial to see how it's not just breaking geographical boundaries, which we'll see in a minute, but it's breaking a boundary of race as well. So I wonder, for a minute, as we think back to Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus saying to his closest apostles, you are going to be taking the message out further from here. It's got to go to the very ends of the earth. This message relies on Peter. This message <coughs> relies on people telling people telling people. Do you think that's a decent strategy of Jesus there? If you had to share a message right now that I gave you to take away, I wonder what you'd do. I went and had a look on Facebook this week and looked at the charity Samaritans who do a lot of work with people really struggling. Um, they do phone lines for people um, thinking about committing suicide and, and their aim is to provide a, a, a safe space to help um, stop people. I was shocked that as I looked at a few of their social media posts, in January, their biggest time, this week, there was three key posts. And on Facebook, they seem to only receive 100 likes for each of those. Now, they're a brilliant charity. They're huge and they're doing great work. 
and they believe that they have a life-saving message to speak to the people on the end of the phones. Yet, with such a big following, with so many people employed, with people employed just to engage people on those clicks, only 100 people of the 66 million in our country like those messages. When we look back at Jesus' tactics to send out 12 people, to just tell people, to speak to people face to face. When we ask the question, is it working? Has it worked? Well, we sit here today because someone told someone, told someone, told someone, who told me, who told you, who told someone else, who told you. We look at our lives and we sit here today because the power of this message is huge. It's phenomenal, isn't it, that this afternoon in gloomy January in 2019 in Bista, we have a sure and certain hope in the future. Because the message of the gospel was not and now is not constrained by geography. But it's made it to us here. The message isn't bound by geography, it's made it right here, but it hasn't quite made it to every corner of Bista, has it? It's not quite made it to every estate, every road, every neighbour. Brings us to the end of verse 7. Let's go back to Cornelius and Peter. We'll see the message is not bound by race. Caesarea is a largely Gentile area, and Cornelius would have been, um, by status, a Gentile. And so the way Luke gives this funny term saying God-fearing, he would have been sympathetic to Judaism, but importantly, he's not yet received the message of the gospel and also, by Levitical status, he would have been unclean. So Cornelius has had his vision and sent two men for Peter in Joppa. What happens next? In like in a good movie, we kind of zoom across, we get a pan angle as if we're going to the other side of the story. Verse 9, it's noon, it's Peter's time to pray and he falls into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners, verse 11. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up Peter, kill and eat. Now this is random, isn't it? What an odd picture. Reptiles, four-footed animals, birds, on a sheet coming down from heaven. This is odd. But it would have been even more odd for Peter. Even more confusing because these animals would have been the animals that he'd known to be unclean as a Jew. It would have been contradictory to the Levitical laws he'd kept avidly. The question is why? Why is there this odd image? This is where we see this kind of second dimension to what's going on. The first is crossing geographical borders. But to the Jews, Cornelius would have been deemed unclean, again by these laws. So it would have been for forbidden to even go and visit him with this message. See, this message isn't really about animals. It's opening Peter's eyes to his job. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
there is no longer any distinction. Have a look down at verse 16. This happened three times. God didn't want it lost in translation for Peter. 17, Peter's thinking about the vision. 19, he's still thinking about the vision even when they come knocking at his door. Verse 19, Peter still needs the prompting of the Spirit. Do not hesitate to go with them. Now, in fairness to Peter, he's learning this all for the first time. It's a brand new concept. It's the first formal evangelism to the Gentiles. But you can see how this message needs reinforcement from God. For us, we don't think like that, do we? We don't think the gospel is only for Jews. But we certainly negotiate for our friends. We don't say he won't receive the message of the gospel because he's not a Jew. We say he won't receive the message of the gospel because he's got a good job. She's really busy with family commitments. He's not very academic. She's happy as she is. She's just not the type. He's too miserable. We negotiate for our friends when God's message is for everyone. We should be ready for the power of God's message to work in the heart of anyone who comes in our path. I wonder how you found inviting to Christmas events. So easily we do that and negotiate for our friends, don't we? We say, uh, I, I did exactly the same. Oh, that person will probably come. I'll make sure I invite them a couple of times. Or we say, that person's never going to come. No, God's message is for everyone. We negotiate negatively, saying this person will never come. But sometimes we negotiate positively as well. We say, oh, that person has got it all sorted. Look back at what it says about Cornelius in verse 2. Cornelius is what? Devout and God-fearing. But he desperately needs the message of the gospel. God's message is of hope for all people, for all kinds of people, not just Jews. In fact, it relies on nothing about a person's abilities. The gospel relies nothing on a person's personality. It, it relies no nothing on their background. This January in the doom and gloom, the hope of the gospel radically transforms a person's life. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says that when someone accepts the gospel, they are passing from death to life. Every person can do nothing about their own position. Therefore, every single person is as in desperate need as anyone else. My neighbour, who the police seem to visit regularly, is no less likely, no less able, no less deserving of accepting the hope of the gospel than I am. That's a huge encouragement for us in the doom of gloom of January, isn't it? that we have a certain hope in a gospel that relies not one bit on how together we are, not one bit on how quickly we can get into our routine. If you're 
in danger of feeling unworthy or hopeless, not good enough this January, praise God. Because the message of the gospel transforms you and it doesn't depend on your ability. But it's a huge encouragement as we think about sharing it too, isn't it? God's message is not bound by geography, it's for everywhere. God's message is not limited by race, it's for everyone. And God's message is not limited by our human performance. I said before, sometimes we're in danger of holding up the book of Acts and saying these were super Christians, the apostles that did amazing things in our churches. But let's zoom in on Peter just for a minute and see how his human performance affects the spread of the message here. All we see is the beginning of the message within this little chunk. But just look at what Peter does. He's had his vision and two voices explaining it three times. Even while he is having it, God sends Cornelius' men to knock at his door. Even then, Peter isn't quite sure of what's going on. He considers it twice and still needs the prompting of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to evangelistic opportunities, that's the best one I think I've ever seen, right? Someone knocking at your door, asking to hear about the gospel, yet he's still upstairs thinking, hmm, I wonder what's going on. Even though he's had this dream twice, refreshed three times, simple, isn't it? Now, I'm not trying to slate Peter here, but he's not exactly being a super Christian when it comes to sharing the gospel message. But that's just the thing. The message is not held up by Peter's human performance. Instead, God chooses to use him and is powerfully at work in the process. How many times have you had someone knocking at your door, asking, begging for the message of the gospel that God has prepared already in their hearts, ready for them to listen to, that in that moment you can just open the door and go for it? Probably not many, I guess. But maybe that's just the thing. We don't think people want to hear our message. We negotiate for our friends. Romans 1 verse 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We shouldn't have a lack of confidence in ourselves but an increased confidence in our message. The way in which we can not be ashamed, in the words of Romans 1.16, is by trusting that the power is in the gospel message. Not, I have the power. Not, I'm quite likeable. Not, I can explain it really well. Not, I've probably got a bit more money than my neighbours so they might listen to me. No, the power is in the gospel message. And when we proclaim the message of the gospel in our conversation, it is the power which saves lost people. That means today we have a real hope in an authentic gospel message. Not because we've been conned by someone, not because we've been conned by the person who really helped us to understand that it was true. I've had a friend who's recently really struggled because one of the big influences in their Christian life appears to be walking away from the truth. It's so hard to see and 
that really affects us, doesn't it? When someone we really trust appears to be walking away from the truth. But it shouldn't lead us to doubt or discredit the message that they shared. Because as soon as we do that, we're saying that the power lies in the individual rather, in, rather than in the proclamation of the message that they brought. If you trust in Jesus, you've come to do so because God, in his power, has revealed the true message of the gospel to you. How refreshing is that? How much hope do we have in that truth this January that we've not been conned by an individual? And that means when I speak to my friends that don't yet know this gospel, I'm not reliant on my intellect. I'm not reliant on my skill or craft. But instead, as I attempt to faithfully hold out this message of hope, we rely on the power of the gospel. The gospel is not limited by human performance. But we see two things that I think can be real barriers to my understanding. I negotiate for my friend. I say, he's just being polite. He doesn't actually want to know. There's no way he'll come to that Christmas event. When I do that, I'm saying, this message isn't powerful enough for him. Or I forget that the power is in the message and not me. I say, you're not interested in the Bible. I can't convince you. That's what I say in my head. When I do this, I'm thinking, I'm not going to work on you because I'm not good enough. I'm not going to attempt to open the Bible with you because I'm not good at doing that really. No, the power is in the message. Of course, we need to work hard at being faithful in how we speak about the gospel, being clear, being simple, being sensitive about sharing it. We're going to have great opportunities to do that in the next couple of weeks in training as we think about sharing the message of the gospel with our friends. But sometimes the biggest mistake we make is to not let the message do the work. We make the decision before we even get there, say that our friends are not quite ready for it. They're not quite ready to open the Bible. We say that they're not quite ready for church. Or we talk about good things like church <coughs> without saying what's at the heart of it. A bit later on in the chapter, we see what happens. Just have a look down at there at verse 43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. See, that link between Peter and Cornelius, ultimately we see that God uses that as the first evangelism to the Gentiles, that the gospel message has great power to overcome those three things. And because of that, this January, we have such a great hope in the gospel. Everyone who accepts this message that has great power and has made it to Bista has forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. What was then astonishing to the circumcised Jews is now the sure hope that we cling to. 
that as Gentiles as we are, we have the Spirit in us to make us alive and make us more like Jesus. And we have a great hope in the message because it's made it to us by flawed individuals. And that's such a great hope because we know that the power is in the message, not the person who gave it to us. And the power is in the message to continue, not reliant on us. The message is not bound by geography. It's for everywhere. It's made it 2,843 miles here from Jerusalem. But it still needs to make it the five feet to my next door neighbour. And probably yours. The message is not bound by race. It's for everyone. We have a certain hope in the gospel because it's for us. It's for Jew, for Gentile, underprivileged, overprivileged, uneducated, extra-educated, old, young. It's for my friend that I think is most likely to accept it. And it's for my friend that over the road gets visited by the police what feels like most days. That I've almost written off in my heart. I know that I must trust that the gospel is for him as well. And this message is not limited by human performance. We have a sure and certain hope that in the gospel, it continues to flourish and spread even now, not through a stream of super-Christians that made it to me, (coughs) not through a a stream of super-Christians that made it to you, but people just like you and me with their knees knocking, stumbling around with their words, worked hard to proclaim the truth of this message and God in his power opened blind eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in the gospel this January. Thank you that it's a hope that we can build our life upon. Thank you that we've not been conned. Thank you that it's true. And thank you that it has great power to change us and give us a hope for eternity. Father, might we go and take that to our friends, trusting completely in its power and not in ourselves. Amen.